All right. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Go ahead and wrap up your conversations here. I'm uh, super pumped, blessed this morning with my brand new office that uh, a lot of people helped make a reality here. Huge shout out to Brent Jensen, making that happen. Jesse Cruz uh, did a lot of the finishing work, so excited to have a wall in my office, and it's a good time to, good time to be here. Um, again, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Uh, great, great to be with you. If you're visiting with us, we're, we're especially glad you're here. We'd love to connect with you. We have uh, connect cards on the little tables at the top of the stairs there. If you want to um, grab that, give us your contact info, we'd love to follow up and see how we can get to know you, get you plugged in in our church family. I'm going to do, uh, I feel like my stand's a little wobbly, a little Dr. Susie. Let me see if I can lower it. I'll do a, one quick announcement here uh, before we launch into our teaching time. Uh, an update about our uh, fall ministry plan. Our rhythm here at Redemption City is we kind of look at the school year as kind of like a ministry plan where we consider uh, what God would have us pursue as a church family in like that, that particular time frame, like September to May, roughly, or whatever. And, and back in June, we announced, that, uh, we announced a vision for a church family night, uh, a Wednesday night gathering where we'd have a kind of like come-when-you-can meal beforehand, after work, and then classes from, for, for people, teaching time for people zero years old to 100 years old. And uh, the, the idea would be to have a, a hospita- hospitality space, both for our church family, also for thinking of like kids in the community that are eating dinner alone because mom and dad are working, or older people that are living alone, and, and then also time for fellowship in our family, and then classes that could help us all grow to become like Jesus, teach and equip us to join God in his kingdom uh, and, and specifically, as we realize that we're transitioning from a time as, as a church family, from, from the kind of scrappy church plant with a, with a bunch of young, kidless people, and that we have an opportunity to embrace the gift uh, of, of all of the kids that, we, that God has chosen to add to our church family. And the, the opportunity is to disciple them, train them up in the knowledge of the Lord um, because that we believe that God is in control, and he's, he's sent us all these kids, not as a distraction from the ministry, but as an opportunity to do ministry. And so, you know, we take our kids to piano lessons and soccer lessons and swimming lessons and all this stuff, uh, so that the vision would be, like, what if there was a life-giving, fun space where our kids could uh, uh, just get to know how good Jesus is? So that's, that's the idea, and uh, we believe it's a whole church endeavor, as any honest parent will tell you. <laughs> you can't do it all by yourself. It takes a village. Uh, but as we started working on this vision this summer, uh, we started talking with leaders and getting feedback. We think that in order to launch the Wednesday night family night well, we need to kind of roll it out in phases and not all at once, uh, just to make sure we kind of have all our ducks in, the row, uh, ducks in a row and all that. So the plan is for our Wednesday night uh, this fall is to do an adult class like we did last year, uh, all throughout the, the ministry year. Uh, in the fall, we're going to teach a class on emotionally healthy relationships, which I'm excited about. We'll announce more about that later. But suffice it to say, we talk about loving each other a lot, and this class is meant to put some, some wheels on the ground for how we can love each other well in real life. And then we're going to launch a middle school and a high school youth group uh, the, this uh, fall on Wednesday night. It's been a growing desire for a lot of us here to see, uh, to, to bless that age group and also just prepare the way for the, you know, mob of uh, young people that are going to become middle schoolers and high schoolers in the, in the next few years and just uh, shape those tender years in a person's life with the gospel. So that's the update, kind of two, two uh, phases there. This fall, we're going to do adults, middle school and high school, and then we'll look to, to incorporate the meal and classes for, you know, the zero to fifth grade range 
uh, starting in January and kind of take the fall to um, get, get everything well organized and get on the same page. So hope to have a, a vision night in early September, uh, like on a Wednesday night, early September, where we can all come together and talk a little bit more about wh- what we think God is doing here. And uh, Joshua Bashan and I have been praying this summer about uh, the, the, the high school kids that we pray the Lord will let us baptize here at the end of the fall as we launch this new ministry. So that's uh, kind of where we're at. I will invite Susie up for the reading of God's word, and we'll get into it. Well, it's a joy to be able to open up God's Word this morning. Um, I'm also particularly grateful to be a part of uh, this church family and how uh, well I've been served by the preaching cohort. These folks are meeting at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays where we uh, do feedback on the last week's sermon and then the person preaching gets to pitch the next one. And uh, I've just been super served by by Susie and Lene, Cruz that come, Mike Bergen and Ken Weiss and Pastor Mike. Super thankful for Pastor Mike and just his uh, leadership getting that together convincing people to show up and talk about the Bible early in the morning. And special shout out to Pastor Ken Weiss, one of our elders. I don't think he's here to this morning, but uh, he dropped some knowledge uh, on, Wednesday, on Wednesday morning that really, really helped me. And, you know, Ken is a quiet guy, doesn't talk a lot, but when he does, you better listen, because it's, it's good. It's good. Talk about life goals. Well, Camille and I and our kids, we uh, try to make a practice of, of uh, Sabbathing from Thursday night around dinner to Friday night uh, at dinner. And last fall, there was a particular Sabbath where we came to the end of a, of a tough week and uh, showed up to, to, the, to the Sabbath the best that we could. It was one of those weeks, you know, where you're just like tired on multiple levels, physically, emotionally, relationally, all this stuff. You're, and, and, and it's like stuff that you're not even quite sure you can articulate. But, you know, we lit the candles that, like we try to do. When we Sabbath, uh, talk about how we rest in delight. Uh, because We rest because God is in control and we can trust him. And we delight because he's good and has given us good things to enjoy. And then we kind of got our kids to bed and didn't last much longer after that. Uh, the next morning we do breakfast and I get the guitar out to, to do, some, do some worship songs, some hymn, hymn sings with the kid. Uh, and we got to uh, this song uh, in the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. We got to this verse where it says, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. And I got to ransomed, bring his ransomed home, his ransomed home to bring and just completely lost it. Like ugly grown man crying, sobbing, all the emotions and sadness and confusion and weariness just kind of caught up with me and and the longing to be brought home by my king flooded my heart and you know of course the kids are like whoa dad dad dad's crying or dad's allowed to do that um but Camille was sweet had them all they all came over and gave me a big hug and just, just let me cry. It was, it was such a sweet moment, such a restorative moment. I, in so many ways, felt, felt healed. In, in that space, uh, to kind of stop and rest and delight, I realized there was all this weight I was carrying from the week. Uh, the, the, I was feeling deeply in my bones, my, you know, my, kind of one of my, my demons, my age-old lie is that it's all on me. And you're just feeling so burdened by the not-rightness uh, of, of the world and so confused about life circumstances. And they're in that Sabbath space and just the simplicity of singing the truths of the gospel with my family. I was reminded that Jesus is the glorious king. I don't have to be in control. The hope that God has set before us in scripture that he's coming back 
and will take me home. It was beautiful. I, I tell that story, we're talking about the Sabbath. Jesus is talking about the Sabbath here uh, in our passage. And Sabbath can be, can be a gift, this 24-hour period where we allow our souls and our emotions to kind of catch up with our bodies and we m- remove distractions so that we can rest and delight and be healed by the presence of God. It's been an invaluable rhythm for Camille and I in our marriage. But as we see in our text, the Sabbath can also become a demanding overlord with like Sabbath police running around watching heads of grains being plucked and stuff. And it can become this overlord that eventually causes people to conspire to commit murder. Like how does a day of rest and delight escalate to murder? What is going on here? Well, the key idea for this this morning is Jesus is Lord. That's a pretty churchy, Christian-y phrase, but it is revolutionary. It is ultimately one of the main reasons that got Jesus killed. You hear nothing else. Hear that. Go and meditate on that. But the, the idea I want us to explore that I think our text shows us is that Jesus, he will kill our demanding overlords and restore us, or we will want to kill Jesus to protect our demanding overlords. Like, death is going to happen around Jesus. Something has to die. It could either be good news and restore us, or it can make us want to kill, kill Jesus. The three things we're going to look at today, the Sabbath as a gift, the withered Sabbath, and the Sabbath healing. So let's dive into our text here, starting in chapter 2, Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then skip down to chapter 3. We have these two Sabbath stories back to back. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. Now, to understand what's happening here, we need to unpack from Scripture in the Old Testament primarily what the Sabbath is all about, because it was a huge deal. When you read the Sabbath, they're like, Jesus, just a day off, like, take it easy, Pharisees. But in Jesus' moment, everyone observed the Sabbath on the same day. Nothing was open, no buying and selling. Uh, it, it, they had a thick culture here. It was because their culture was shaped by Scripture, by the Old Testament. And sal- salva- Sabbath was foundational to their understanding of reality, how they related to God and understood their identity, who they were in relation to God as his people. First, look all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on, God, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So from the very first pages of scripture, we see God resting after six days of work. And here, it's profound. He's not blessing a place or a particular person, but a day, a reoccurring period of time that he's calling holy, which means set apart. One author I read said, said, Sabbath is a temple in time. 
Other religions might go to Mecca or do, do some kind of go to a place where there's a temple. But we see in the scriptures that God gave us a holy space on the calendar instead of a map where we can go to be with God. We see God stopping, which is what the word Sabbath means. Shabbat in Hebrew means stopping, ceasing from labors. And it's not because God was tired, but because he had finished. And he was delighting in his work. And this shows us a six-in-one rhythm of work and rest woven into the fabric of the universe. But it's, it, it ties to the order of creation and, and is a place of God's divine blessing. And this is repeated uh, in the Ten Commandments, which are kind of a big deal in the canon of Scripture. Exodus 20, 8 through 11 says, this is number four, ten, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One commentator pointed out that alone of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is rooted in the order of the creation. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments when you actually like read them in Exodus 20. It has the most words, and it goes all the way, it's like explained to go all the way back to creation. In Israel, God's people uh, had Sabbath along with circumcision as the two primary things that God had given them to mark them as his people, as their identity, as his beloved chosen people. It was an eternal sign of, of blessing, of Israel's unique status of all the peoples in all the world as God's chosen. And it was a gift. Ezekiel 20.12 says, I gave them my Sabbath, this is God speaking, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. It's a beautiful picture. It shows God giving a gift for a purpose to point them to him. It's a sign pointing to something greater. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 27 of chapter 2. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God invented, created the Sabbath, and gave it to mankind as a sign to show that it's him, that he's the point of everything, and it's he who sanctifies, he who holds and sustains and protects and provides. The Sabbath was this beautiful gift that, that reminded people of their identity. And the Ten Commandments, in the context of Exodus, they're given to uh, God's people fresh from slavery, coming out of being slaves for centuries in Egypt, where they had to work without a day off for 400 years. And so after freeing them from their identity as slaves, he gives them these commands, one of them being the Sabbath, that will help them live out their identity now as his people that don't need to work seven days a week. And as they wandered in the wilderness, you see it play out again, like God gave them bread from heaven. He said, only collect enough for each day. Uh, if you collect too much, you'll get all maggoty. But on the sixth day, you can collect enough for two days. So that, that day is set apart where you can eat bread from heaven on the seventh day that you didn't even collect that day and just acknowledge that all things come from God. So I hope you can see how m this practice of Sabbath was just massive to the culture of Jesus' day. 
and particularly the Pharisees. It was their job to understand and live out and help others live out the law of God. It was a precious gift that they had received that marked their identity. And so on some level, they're not wrong for taking it so seriously. But like all gifts that God gives us, if we don't interact with them appropriately, they will wither our souls. And this shows us the the, the withering of the Sabbath. Because the the principle, the commanded principle from God is to keep the Sabbath holy, set it distinct apart from the other days. And in an effort to to live out that principle, that big picture command, the uh, at this point in Jewish history, they had, they had written or volumes of rabbinic teachings on how to do that, very very specifically. In Jesus's day, most uh, famously, there were thirty nine melakots uh, or melakot. That might already be plural. Sorry, um, thirty nine things that were no nos that you were not allowed to do. I put that's not even all of them. I was like spending too much time on this slide, so I just like that's most of them. But I just wanted to put them up there. I'm not going to read 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 them all, but it's just like. No sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing. It's like this 39 no-nos. And in both of these stories, Jesus is coming up against not the fourth commandment, this gift that God gave to his people, but these man-made guidelines for how to keep the Sabbath. And both these stories show how this precious God-given gift of the Sabbath had become distorted, withering the humanity of the people it was meant to bless. It was meant to restore and become, make whole. That the Sabbath, this gift, had become a demanding overlord over their lives. No longer did they see it as a gift, as a sign pointing them to the steadfast love of God who chose them. As a, as a day where they could do things to connect with God that they couldn't do the other six days of the week while they were working. And instead, they had made the command Lord over them. A controlling, heavy-handed Lord always looking to slap your wrist. The very thing that was supposed to soften their hearts secure, and secure their identity under the rightful Lord of all had now hardened their hearts and withered them. Their identity was, not, was less focused on God's people, but I, they're identifying as keepers of a particular kind of Sabbath, amongst other traditions. The best image I can think of this withering from loving something precious is Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Now, you, you Tolkien scholars out there, don't think about this too hard. Like, the metaphor breaks down when you look at, like, what the ring does and, you know, like, Smeagol's story. Don't think about it too hard. I know we have a lot of Tolkien scholars here. But instead, just consider that Gollum, that scary guy on the screen, begins as a normal hobbit, enjoying trees in the river and fishing with his friend in the sunshine. And then his friend finds a ring and kills his friend. And he kills his friend to get it and gets obsessed with it. And it ruins him, leaving him alone, dark, in a cold cave, muttering about his precious And what I want us to see is that this happens, this is what happens to all of us when we take any gift from God and begin to obsess about the gift and lose sight of the giver. It kills the relationship that the gift was supposed to, to grow, and it withers our entire being. I don't know many of us here who are too serious about the Sabbath, but what are some of the gifts that 
that God gives to us to show us who he is, to be signposts of who he is and who we are as his image bearers, as his children. One case study would be family, raising kids, or being, being a part of an extended family with all the family functions and stuff like that. Like, consider the extended family idea. Like, the, all the, the, what a gift it would be to have an extended family that was a life-giving place where you experienced belonging, you had a, a table, at, you had a seat at the table no matter what, you, what dumb thing you had done. It could be a beautiful picture to remind us that this is what Christ has purchased us in the gospel, that we have a seat by grace at God's table. But can extended family and all the pressures and demands and relational things become a demanding overlord? where we have to be there or there's drama. And so we become these kind of grumbling, withered people that are resentful because you know, we can't let grandma be disappointed that we don't show up. Or parenting. For me, becoming a dad has been one of the most powerful ways that God has like, drawn me deeply, experientially, into his love for me. Like, the love that came over me when Johnny was born like, I, just flattened me. Like, I, just, I, I became undone. I, I could not sing about Johnny. I still can't about all my kids. Silly, goofy songs or like pop songs that I rework work the words to and stuff like that that don't rhyme and whatever. I'm, and I would think about the verse in Zephaniah where it says that God will rejoice over me with singing. How can it be? How can God love me more, way more, more perfectly than, than this love that is overpowering to me towards my kids? The deepest moments of realizing God's love comes when I consider how I love Johnny or how I want to love Johnny or the delight I feel in him and and just sit with with the treasure that the scripture says that is how God feels towards me in Christ. But can parenthood become an overlord that withers our souls? Can it cause me to lose lose sight that as a father I am first and foremost a son of God? Of course. It could be a way we define ourselves, a way we excuse less time with God or caring for less time caring for other people. Ways we try to justify ourselves, like, how do I know if I'm winning in life? How are my kids doing? Do they dazzle people at the store or have to be dragged out having a meltdown to the van and, you know, shame? Are we grumbly parents who complain about our kids even as we can't hire a babysitter or do a night away to save our lives because... We don't want to let go of control or look like a bad parent. And we can let the gift of parenthood, is, 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 is a gift, the Bible says, and it shows us who God is. And we can let the gift define us and control us until we're withered, lonely people. And our kids are raised and gone and we're in an empty house and our marriage is cold and we just hope some grandkids come along at some point. So, of course, we can see how something as beautiful and God-given as family can be twisted and withered when it becomes our Lord. It's easy to rag on the Pharisees in this text because we're not like a rule-focused church, but Jesus is saying he is Lord, period. In verse 28, it says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so to these people who had taken a gift and made it Lord, he's saying, like, no, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And to some of us today, Jesus might be saying, I am Lord, even of your kids. I am Lord, even of your money. I am Lord, even of your sexuality. I am Lord, even of your career. 
Abraham Kuyper said it like this. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And he can do that. We could do case studies on all aspects of our lives, all aspects of our existence. Work is a gift. Joining God in the ruling of creation as his image bearers. Walking in joy as we embrace what we can do and resting in joy as we embrace our limits. But can work become an overlord? Yes. We literally literally sacrifice our bodies and our closest relationships to make happy. We see the devastation of sin. This is one of the main ways we see our sin, we can understand our sin. Brokenness that boasts that both deeply offends the almighty King of kings, Lord of lords of the universe by worshiping the gift and not the giver. But it also destroys us, ruins our lives. And so what will this Lord of all, King Jesus, do with the withered parts of us? Mark gives us an incredible story of healing and murder side by side. Look what happens next. Mark 3, again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So this is an amazing scene. Jesus, in the story before, reveals himself as Lord of even the Sabbath, like he's put down the gauntlet. He's revealed himself as the, the whole point of this millennia-old gift, the, one of the primary markers of God's people given to them by God. And here we are on a Sabbath in the gathering place of the people of God, and we have a man with a withered hand who probably would have been on the margins of society, probably very poor because he couldn't work very much. And with some of the pop theology of the day, disability was seen as a result of your sin or your parents' sin. So he probably would have lived with this low-grade to high-grade defining shame that this withered hand, this thing that is so ruining my life is is my fault, is because of me. Imagine the state of his soul, lonely, ashamed, Yet it's beautiful, here he is on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, in the gathering place of God's people, drawing near to God in the way that he knows how, to hear the word of God read. And the Lord of the Sabbath sees him lurking in the back and says, come here, come forward, come to the front. Which is terrifying, because also in the room, we have the Pharisees, the winners, the respectable people, the professional God people, with power and influence. Like I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that they would not have been super welcoming or kind to this guy in his disability. And Jesus is very aware of what's going on, uh, that there's some kind of test happening here. The word used for accuse in the Greek has the, has the sense of building a legal case against someone. The Pharisees like, think that Jesus is guilty. They want to prove him that way, and so they're trying to gain evidence. To the Pharisees with withered hearts, this disabled man, this image bearer of God, has become a pawn in their scheme to develop a case against the Son of God. And Jesus asks a question, verse five or 4. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. 
Jesus' questions are amazing. In this one question, Jesus is, is coming to assassinate their false lords. He's coming in for the kill and exposing their withered souls. How the precious particulars of the way they decided to observe the Sabbath have completely lost the point that they would want a man to stay disabled. And it seems like the Pharisees know that they've been got. Like, what, they're silent. What could they say? If they say, uh, yes, the Sabbath is for doing harm and not good, then they look like fools. And if they say the obvious answer, yes, it's for doing good, then they're undermining their entire Sabbath system with the 39 no-nos and showing that there is something more important than the way that they practice the Sabbath. And I just love how it describes Jesus' heart here. He's angry and grieved. He's sad at their hard hearts. Such a great picture of the heart of God towards sin. There is anger and there is sadness. There's anger that we would blaspheme the true Lord of our souls with soul-withering overlords. And he's heartbroken that we'd miss out on the joys of life with God under his rule. The restoration that comes from knowing the giver of the gifts. <laughs> Just imagine this awkward silence, this, this stare down. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. He calls this man to come out of the shadows in front of everyone in front of Jesus himself, and hold out the part of his being that has most defined his life, that he hates the most, that he's most ashamed of. The man has a choice to make here. The thing he most fears is before him. He can refuse this exposure, this humiliation, stay withered, But if he does that, he would be just like the Pharisees, just like the religious leaders who refused to come to Jesus as Lord of all. The choice before him is to take a risk, risk humiliation, act in faith on the command of Jesus, and in humble obedience to the Lord of all the man obeys, he stretches out his hand and is restored. It is made new. Friend, if you're here today, The King Jesus, the Lord of even the Sabbath, even your parenthood, your singleness, your sexuality, your work, your money, your lack of money, loves you too much to let you stay hidden in the shadows, withered. The question is, will you let him expose it? Will you obey him, come to him, bring the withered parts of your soul? You don't have to fix them yourselves, you just have to bring them and offer them, point them out, to him? Will you receive restoration, healing from obedience to the Lord of all? What did the man do to heal himself? (laughs) Nothing. He just held out his arm. Jesus does all the work. Our part is to come before the Lord of all. Offer up to him the, the stuff that has most control over our lives. Friend, what is the Spirit saying to you now? What withered part of your soul or your body, of your past story that is, is controlling you like a demanding overlord? What have you set your life up to appease and manage? What part do you want to hide 
and your cloak away from King Jesus. The invitation is to come to him and stretch it out, risking humiliation in order to submit to the Lord of all. The only other option, friend, is to kill Jesus. Verse 6, after this miraculous healing, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Pharisees reject Jesus' lordship and then run out to immediately partner with their sworn enemies. So much of the Pharisees' entire system is set up in opposition to the Herodians who had kind of like just let themselves get absorbed into the Roman Empire. So the Pharisees are trying to protect purity and Jewish customs and teachings. They are diametrically opposed to these people, but they have a common enemy now. And they want to kill Jesus. From both ends of the spectrum, the super-religious rule followers to the very worldly, power-hungry Herodians all want him dead. That is the only other option. Humble submission to the Lord of all or murder. N.T. Wright says it like this. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. What will you choose? To close, I want to consider the question, how can we come to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath who heals our withered hearts? If you're, if you're there and the Spirit is putting something on your heart that you're like, yes, this is part that I've held on to that is withering my soul. And I want to extend an invitation to create a temple in time. Create space on your calendar that is holy and set apart unto the Lord of all. It could look a lot of different ways for, for us all over the place, but it, it could look like getting alone with Jesus to, to duke it out, to surrender some part of your heart that you have been holding back. Or for some of us, it might be putting space on our calendar to meet with some brothers or sisters or a pastor to confess our overlords, bring it into the light of gospel community. Consider our case study with parenting. Maybe you see parenthood doing things to your soul, uh, your relationship with God that are withering you. Maybe this would look, be as simple as finding a babysitter uh, and, to, and to get some space with Jesus to put the overlord of parenthood before him. Or maybe as a terrifying act of faith, you need to do your first night away from your kids that you've ever done. Embrace all the feels and anxieties and guilt and shoulds and oughts that come from stepping away and, and get away for a night and just meditate on Zephaniah 3. The, the, father, the, the God of the universe is your father singing songs of delight over you. Letting Jesus be Lord and heal our withered selves is going to look like distancing ourselves from our overlords by, by holding it out to him. And I think that's going to look like practical, concrete steps. I don't know what it is for you. What do you, what do you sense the Spirit telling you your false Lord is? 
And if you're not sure, then I want to offer to you the practice of the Sabbath. John Piper said it last week in reference to fasting, is that fasting can reveal and remedy the broken parts of our hearts. And in my experience, Sabbath done within the framework of Scripture as a gift, a temple in time to connect with God, it will both reveal all those false overlords, the things that we're enslaved to, experientially in our life, and it will offer rhythms to be healed by the Holy Spirit where we're surrendering those over and over again, week after week. It's a a diagnostic tool. We might not think we're anxious or driven by guilt as long as we're busy and entertained, but come to a day of rest and stuff gets exposed. You're just like making a sandcastle with your kids and a huge grump (laughs) because all this stuff is coming out about work or whatever it is. You're sitting on the porch with your coffee and your Bible in this unhurried, sweet space as the sun rises, and you're just shooting all over yourself. I should be working on the yard. I should be doing this. I should be calling that person. I I should be doing all this other stuff. I didn't think I was ruled by guilt, but these shoulds and oughts are exposed. And there you are on the Sabbath with that space to connect with God in a way that you don't normally throughout the other six days, to to offer the shoulds and oughts that control your life to God and ask him to to heal them, to take them away, to restore your heart in the gospel. There's no shame or guilt in any of this exposure. It's all covered in grace. Grace is a gift. One way to define grace and let a 24-hour period of rest and delight be the gift that both exposes, that reveals and remedies, exposes our withered parts, and creates space to be restored. There's a lot of practical things we could say about the Sabbath that we don't have time for here. We got into it even just with our little like pre-meeting prayer time, little like Sabbath seminar. It was fun, it was fun conversation because there's so many practical questions. But the one thing that I will say is that it, to Sabbath one day a week requires you to live the other six days differently. It is a myth, it is a lie, it is foolishness to think that like, you can live a crazy life and then roll into a meaningful Sabbath. Sabbath will, will reframe how what we say yes to, what we say no to, what the other six days look like. It's a common mistake to think that we can rest and not have any limits from the rest. But rest causes us to embrace limits and acknowledge that we're not God. A friend, Jesus is king. He's Lord of all. He's put a, a choice before you to restore broken people with his presence who come in humble submission. Will you come to him to hear his call out of the shadows to be restored? Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for who you are as our Father. I praise you for your promises that you are for us, that you love us. Uh, and that you've given us um, Jesus as the ultimate gift, the Lord of the Sabbath. I thank you for how you uh, call us into this beautiful space of humble submission. And I praise you for uh, what Jesus did to allow us to see you as Father. I pray against any guilt or shame here. I pray that the Holy Spirit, you would be active and working in people's hearts uh, to reveal what you're inviting them into, what needs to be healed and restored in their hearts and lives. I pray that we'd be, we'd be a people marked by Sabbath rest, whether we, we actually do a full 24 hours a week or not, that we would be people that walk in the beautiful Sabbath rest, knowing that all that we need is found in the Lord of the Sabbath, that he has made a way to secure a place at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.